0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Back Porch Stories Podcast with Chuck Sted. If you're enjoying these stories, don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button. And please feel free to share these stories with family and friends. Immediately following our story today, Chuck will chat with our producer, Joe Serino, and our music composer, Mr. Scott Lewis, revealing some of the stories behind the stories and some of Chuck's thoughts about the people and places in the episode. Thanks for listening. Here now is Chuck Stead.
1: Hi, everybody. Uh, this story is called Heebie Tells About the Ramapo Salamander. Now, the Hebe man, my grandfather, he'd enter the front room. This is in the house on 2nd Street. It's a room surrounded by swimming wallpaper flowers. He looks down at this fat-headed little lump of a baby folded up on its Tootsie Roll self, Buddha-like, air in the center of the woven rag rug. Yes, I'm afraid that was me. He stares with satisfaction at this bulging baby who has come to recognize him. Woman, he shouts at the girl from the flatland, the state of New Jersey, which really wasn't flat. He'd taken up residence. This girl who had taken up residence in his family some 13 years earlier. Woman, I'm here, he declared. As he lowered himself, his folds of ancient self, into a dark overstuffed easy chair. From his left breast pocket, he takes a new and delicate cigar, a coffin peg as Malstead might call it, and with paper matches, he drops the two of them together alongside the chair, and now he waits for the chocolate treasure in his right shirt pocket to be retrieved. Tessie walks through the kitchen, and seeing the scar, she says, Popstead. Don't smoke that thing with the boy in your lap. The heebie-jeebie man stared at her, as if she had never been there before, like she just materialized, as if she dropped in from some other world, as if she had three heads, all of them in disagreement as to the rearing of a melon-headed child. I do as I might, woman. She, this woman, who talks regularly of returning to the workforce, because Hilburn is not the end of the world you know, She looks down at the ugly little fourth offspring that she had given birth to, and she says to him, Go to your grandpop. And he, that is myself, a baby, who babbled regularly about a world that seldom went beyond the front room of the house, toddled my way up to the rumpled elder whose knobby hands drew him up into the smoke breath of stories told over many times. Now pop. Don't go telling him things that are not good for a little boy. E.B.G.B. stared down at the dark-eyed offspring. He took the chocolate bar from his pocket and whispered in a gravelly sound, What's right for me is right for you. We shared the chocolate. I sucked on it in silence, sleepy and snoozed against his smoky chest, listening to the rusty eggshell sound of his voice. So this is about the salamander. Ah, he was a tricky one. You don't want to mess with him. But this is a sad story, too. Yeah, there are sad stories. No getting around it. But if in that pretty girl, Hugo's daughter, she was, if she weren't the beauty that she was, that rascally salamander would have done much more devilish business, surely. Now, her name was Mary. Uh, That was her name, Mary. And it's a good name. And well, more of a drop of purity the heavens never sent to no one else. Some say she was the beauty of her mother and the strength of her father. That being the case, it's no wonder she paired off with the salamander. For it's the way of things: two strong forces meeting like that. Hey, 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 hey! Now, don't you get droopy eyes on me. This ain't no sleeper. Wake up! Now, now this here story has to do with the Ramapo Torn Mountain. Now, how in Lord's name they come to call it torn, I still can't figure. And and to make things more confusing, there's a, a mountain called High Tor over by New City, and there's even a little torn back of the Ramapo Torn. Well, that lately has been called Russian Bear. I don't know why. It's foolishness is why, and Mother Nature has changed that and knocked off the piece of rock that looked like a bear. Old Granny Nature, she changes things. But you see, this here story goes back to a time when some of the first white men come into the valley, before before Van Blarcom came along and stamped his name here, and before old John Suffren came up to, to buy in the land all around us, back then, when the Indians were still trapping the beaver and talking counsel to the animals, they could do that, you know. They could just sit right down with them and talk. Seems back then, German folk, uh, they, they do the smelting of the iron. They can actually heat up the rock and get the iron out of it, and they call it smelting. Well, they was here in this valley and I heard this one from Walter Garrison himself. He heard it from some half-breeds up in Newports, I suppose. Good man he was. He helped your great grandma. He helped her get on her feet, he did. So don't you go around telling me about some Reverend Slicker who says that these stories ain't real. They ain't in the legal records. The real stories never are. Anyways, th- there was this Iron Master... Uh, He was uh, running the forges. He was a big fella, Hugo. Uh, He had him a beautiful wife and and two children, a boy and a girl. And the girl was this Mary I told you about. And the boy was little Hugo, Hugo Jr. So this master, he was tickled by the ways of the Indians. You know, their beliefs that all things in nature have have got souls and spirits and stuff like that. And and this was part of why he come to lose stock of, of his own ways. You see, he was one of them foreign Christians, one of them Rosacrucians, they call them. And I don't hold no truck by them, but but he come to figure out that the the youngest of the Magi who who followed the Star of Bethlehem had something to do with the treasures of the Torn Mountain. Now, what them treasures was supposed to be, I, I don't figure, unless, of course, it was the treasure of smelting iron out of the rock like they were good at doing. Either way, this here you go. He, he set up and, and he worked at the Smelton. That was his treasure. Now, there was a custom in the old country that uh, it, the old country is what it was in Europe. It was the old part called Middle Europe, I think. Well, the custom was to keep your forge fires from burning more than seven years straight. Seems they believe that the salamander, that's a little lick of flame inside the coals. If you don't put out the flame... Uh, every seven years or so, that that rascal can get free. He's kind of like a shapeshifter. And then there's hell to pay. But it weren't all that easy to stoke up a forge fire, so when his workers called to him that it was time to put them out, he done kept it going. And then they seen the face of the salamander getting out of the fire, and they all go numb to stop it. But you goes, Ellen, wife, she comes in and she throws holy water into the fire, and she says some holy prayers or something, And then she drops dead like a stone. Pop's dead, Tessie came charging into the room. Pop, you're telling him ghost stories? People dying in them? Woman, we're just talking cowboys and ninjins stuff is all. Huh, then what is this salamander stuff? Well, salamander, uh, it's a little bit of a critter. You find him under a rock. She folded her arms. She was not to be fooled. The old man was stubborn. He told the boy whatever he pleased. Tessie shrugged. Don't be giving him nightmares. She walked back to the kitchen. Don't be listening for none and you won't have none. Huh. He shifted his weight. Now then, seven years pass and, and the old forger Hugo has come to revere his faith uh, with Grandpappy Lord, you know, and so he decides to take his children to be consecrated, but there was a sudden flash of lightning and it robs the little boy right out of, right out of life kills him Hebe shook his head i seen lightning like that was was coming down out of jenkins hollow and uh i got took up in a powerful storm one night and it whipped around the torn ledge and, and blew me back into the boulders and I, I hunkered down and tried to set it out there was no night to be out walking and and then them winds blew up something powerful like a like screaming and and that's when i seen it a flash of lightning the color it the color of which I'd never seen before, some 30 feet out ahead of me, and, and well, it burned clear through to my eyesight. Must have been one of them salamanders up to his tricks. Weren't no use in trying to get away. Just stayed up there until the whole thing blew over. Ooh. Anyways, where was I? Oh, Hugo. Well, he done lost little Hugo that day with that flash of lightning. And then another seven years passed. You see, that's the thing about this story. Everything goes in sevens. Seems Hugo takes his pretty daughter Mary up to the top of Torn Mountain, and up there he seeks the treasure that men see in the oar. Only he comes to hear it speaking to him now. The treasure can talk, and it's calling for him to break the tie that binds men to the forces of the earth, to speak the secret words that are written on the salamander's back. And that would have surely been the end of his life, for such words are unholy to mortal men. But it was Mary's sweet little prayer that brought him back to her and she kept him from answering the deviltry of the salamander. Well, then another seven comes along at seven nights that pass, and Yugo, he's seen the salamander in his dream sleep. Only Yugo could not make out the words that were burned onto the back of the salamander, and so it was that Yugo's search for truth and beauty and happiness, it was forever cursed. And now you're cursing at him. Tessie marched into the room. Damnation, woman! I'm not cursing at him. I'm cursing at you. How can I get through a story with you marching in here every few minutes? <sighs> Chicken Little? The Three Pigs? Don't you know any fairy tales? I'll give you fairy tales, woman. And just what is a salamander? She struck a pose. And don't go talking about a lizard. Hmm, salamander. Yeah, well, uh, well, yeah, it's a sort of three-legged Gas heater the boys use when they're working out in the cold, but you gotta be careful, thing gets awful hot. My mother studied him. He was a simple country elder whose defiance pressed all of her buttons. She would not be gotten the best of. She turned and crossed out to the kitchen, but looked back and squinted to see if we were really still there, as if we could have just slipped away. When next he spoke, it was in a long, low whisper, so as not to broadcast his story to the kitchen. Now, into the village comes a stranger, and he's a handsome devil. He and Mary, well, they fall quickly for each other. There is love between them. And it was her loving him that changed his ways and called him back from the dark forces. Because, you see, he was really the salamander, up to his tricks again. Couldn't kill nobody, so he was going to rob Hugo of his last child. He was trying to draw Mary away, but she loved him with a purity that... Well, it undone him, and he come to see past the power of the dark forces. He told her her the truth, that he was an angel fallen from the sky, and he had become tempted by the power of the fire. And just then, the men from the village, they come up the hill, and Hugo was leading them, and they dove down upon the stranger, and they dragged him back to the furnace, and they threw him in it. But Mary saw that he went in with peace in his heart, And the men saw that when he was tossed in the flames, nothing of him burned. He just disappeared, and most likely blew to the four winds in his smoke. Hebe then took a long, slow pull on his cigar. He nibbled the end a bit, spit it to the floor. That's how it is with fire and smoke. He lit up the cigar and puffed on it. It's the changing in nature. That that moves from one thing to the other, powerful force. He pinched the matchbook again, pulled out a match, struck it again, ignited the end of the cigar, puffed down long and hard, and followed by a quick short. And then he he lit it a second time and dropped the match into the ashtray. A dusky blue-gray cloud of smoke swallowed his entire head. The first things I remember in my life are those days of sitting in that overstuffed easy chair with him. His voice sounded like a gentle bear whispering to me. His clothes were always thick and warm and smelling of chocolate and tobacco. We sat in that front room of the house with the wallpaper that had great flowing flowers swimming all around us. He would put his cigar out in the wooden ashtray that was cut from a tree, and I would ride a hundred miles to a place in one of his stories.
0: And now a brief pause for a message from our favorite sponsor, Montgomery Book Exchange.
1: You know, guys, I'm a big reader, which means I'm a big book buyer, but I seldom buy a new book. Used bookstores have been my salvation. Wait a minute. I thought this garage was a used bookstore. (laughs) Yeah, Cat would like that, this garage be a bookstore.
2: Speaking of bookstores, I've got my eye on that Mark Twain collection behind you.
1: Oh, no, no, that's not for sale. That's the point. Some books you hold on to and reread over the years, while others, they just move on. And that's why I like the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's a family-owned, used bookstore nestled in the historic village of Montgomery, New York, right here in the Hudson Valley of New York State.
2: Wow, this sounds like a commercial. And
1: it is one. Montgomery Book Exchange is our first sponsor. And why is it called Book Exchange? Glad you asked that question books you no longer want, you can exchange at the Montgomery Book Exchange for store credit. To get more books.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The book exchange sounds like fun. When is it open?
1: Well, Tuesday through Thursday and Saturday 10 to 4, Friday 10 to 6, and Sunday 12 to 4. Check them out at Ah.
0: MontgomeryBookExchange.com That's wonderful, Chuck. Man, oh man, what a storyteller he was! <laughs> yeah. So
2: that's who passed the torch, right there. That's where it all started. And I Not love that, that he yes. never gets through the whole story. He, you get a chapter, or a, a few ideas, and then he gets interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Right. He, this. he also, you're going to see in another one later on. He never, he seldom gets to a point where it really finishes. It it kinda it kind of yeah. fades out and then maybe on another day fades back in again. It's episodic, but it's not necessarily cut and dry. I think the salamander was the most cut and dry one because, you know, he, he goes up into the four winds, you know, that kind of thing. Did he share
0: stories like this with other cousins or was this something
1: special with you or uh, according to uh to Walt and and Mal both confirm this, that he told stories a lot, but I was lethargic, you know, I was, I was like a little dead weight with my cannonball head, you know, I, I just sat there, and, um, and other kids, he told stories to, he loved all his grandchildren, but they were more, you know, kinetic, they, Mm. you know, it was the 50s, they were drinking sweetened beverages for children, and, and they were jumping around, and, and uh, Tessie was proud of the fact that he would spend a lot of time with me, but it was easy to spend time with me because I really didn't do much of anything. But while she was proud of it, she had to keep an eye on it because, um, you know, one of the things I, I'm not telling in, in these stories is he talked candidly about relationships and sometimes too candidly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it would infuriate her Catholic sensibilities. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah. And was he. F- Familiar or friends with Native Americans from the town, so because the way he imparts information is very Indian to me. It doesn't have that that European timeline where there's a beginning, middle, and end, Mm -hmm. and like he'll throw in little details that are not related to what he's talking about, like with the tour Mm -hmm. business, and and oh yeah, there's a high tour. I don't know what it means, and and then he gets back somehow. Mm to whatever he was, that seems to me for some reason a kind of Indian way of looking at things. I, I don't know why.
1: I, I think so. I think so. And, and, and I think, you know, first of all, you, you, you couldn't grow up in Hilburn and not be familiar with, uh, with natives. Mm. You know, you, you couldn't. But the racism of the mid-20th century meant that a whole lot of white people, um, they parsed it out. And, and they did their best to deny that that part of our culture was very much alive. And, and he didn't. He worked in the ironworks as a young man right alongside, you know, uh, uh, Polish, Irish, German, black, and and what he would call red, which would have been native. And the, all these folks had their various distinctive cultures, but they were all there. And as ironworkers, they were pretty much equal because they were all working in pretty much the same, you know, uh, environment. And um, I, I think he was a lot more tolerant of our differences and kind of intrigued by our distinctions. Then, interestingly enough, a lot of his own kids. Yeah. Uncle Mal was a wonderful racist, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and uh, and old Pop. I don't think he. I I know he wasn't really like that because he his storytelling often was informed, like you're saying, by a, a kind of indigenous way of storytelling, and and he talks about that later in these stories. As and when
2: well. was he born?
1: I believe it was 1881. Okay, so it would have been around from that earlier story, 1889, that they went to. Uh, or that they were in Patterson, New Jersey, in that that earlier story I told. Right,
0: yeah, I noticed that too. What you're just talking about, Scott. That he he, it's almost like he's he's telling a story, but every once in a while, oh, let me add a little color here. Let me let me paint the background because what that does is it puts you in the story. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah, yeah. you're there on the street. You're there in the woods. You're there with him. And uh, I just I think that is so remarkable it's it's a i guess it came natural to him right? i
1: think it did and 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 uh some of my cousins say i i've elaborated his persona and i'm giving him uh attributes he didn't have um that's their version uh, yeah. my my version is i didn't do anything i just sat there and what i would guess i was doing was just suck you know sucking it all in like a sponge yeah, yeah. and i was so fortunate actually that i was lethargic as a child because this was great stuff and and kids unfortunately, and maybe this is for talking contemporary uh, ideas here, kids don't often have patience you know with a, a storyteller from a, another time and um, and they don 't think it's relevant because it 's not their time and their thing and uh, i didn 't know that this was another t- I thought this was all happening at the same time, you know, like when he tells me the story in in the next one, I think I tell talk about Ike, the guy he he fought. Well, he fought him in the early 1930s. I thought he fought him, you know, Tuesday. You know, I, I didn't have that sense of, un- and that was important because then that makes these older folk tales like the Salamander, which is a real folk tale from the Ramapo Hills, it makes it alive to the moment. Yeah. Like that just happened to Hugo. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh,
0: that's, and it makes it a much more, you know, kind of a living story, you know, like a, a more exciting. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. in your mind's eye, especially as a boy, but even in, in my mind's eye, you know, as I'm listening to it, as Scott's listening to it, we're seeing it. It's happening, you know, and it's uh, it's fascinating. And I think you're probably right. He probably got the nature of storytelling from the Native Americans that he associated with, you know, early on in his in his life. The, the other thing I would say is that when your cousins say, well, you're viewing him with characteristics that we never saw and everything, that's what happened. They didn't see it. Uh-huh. You saw it. They didn't see it. They saw other things that you didn't see. Uh-huh. If you ask ten people to tell you describe, uh, you know, any famous person that uh, everyone has seen and met, either on television or whatever, you're going to get ten different answers. Uh-huh. You know, people are going to latch on to things that are meaningful to them that they identify with. So I'm never concerned about that. And I, I always feel like the story is always your story, your story of what you saw, what happened. And uh, you got to stay true to that. And yeah, you do.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my, my cousin Frankie, who I talk about later in these stories, he, at one time he heard something or read something that I wrote. And he said, Chucky, how, how could you know that? You you were three years old. How the hell could you know that? that? You couldn't know that. I can't remember anything from when I was 10 years old. How can you know that from three years old? And... Part of it is I'm a different person than he is. Yeah. But the other part of it is I always listen to people. So Tessie would often tell me after my grandpa was gone about these times he told me these stories and she would reference the points that annoyed her and that would be a clue to remembering the rest of the thread. Mm. And Walt would do the same thing. He would tell me something, and he would say, well, that was, I, I learned that from, from Pop. And then he would tell me a little bit of what his father told him, and I'd remember the similarity between that and something else he said. So I have that facility, apparently, yeah. to keep you know, pulling
2: those threads together to understand how this thing has played out. There's also a difference in the, the quality of the passage of time When you're relating a story versus relating what's happening around the telling of the story. In other words, and and this story kind of balances those two. Because when he's into the story, it's almost like you're in the great time where... Time isn't really moving the way we experience it a day to day, and then all of a sudden, what are you telling him that for? I'm like, now you're right back in the moment of lived experience, <laughs> yeah. and then he goes somehow, seemingly, you know, effortlessly back to this story that doesn't really have a beginning or an ending. Right, and now we're kind of floating for a while, and then it's now you're talking about it. Now we're back, you know, and this story really kind of <laughs> demonstrates those two. <laughs> Existences, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the one story, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it because if it weren't for Tess, we'd just hear the story, right? But because of Tess, we get to meet Popstead, right? You know, in these these moments and everything, in his brashness and his uh, you know, challenging way. And you, I think, you appreciate the fact that he slows down this much to talk with you and tell you these stories even more because of that. But I love the uh. You know the, the back and forth
1: with them. It's what, just what was fortunate for me. In, I I love that too. That I was drawn to that actually. And what was fortunate uh, for me is when he when you know Grandpa finally leaves the earth in the, in the mortal coil, as it were. Slowly, but very much surely, Walt takes the place of that in terms of the point counterpoint between Walt's way and Tess's way. Because Tessie always needed that. She needed to work off of something. That's that's how she was at her best, or her finest, was to have that little little intellectual nudge to work off of something, which she did with Grandpa, with Heebie-Jeebie. And she ultimately does with Walt. And she does fiercely with uh, Mal, Uncle Mal. But I, I didn't really, you know, at first I, I lost, you know, when he goes, finally, I, I lost, you know, my partner, you know. Yeah. And, um, and it was tragic, and uh, but, but I found that that quiet man in our lives, that other man, <laughs> who, who didn't say much, actually is kind of like him, and then actually kind of starts to embody, for me, what he was doing.
0: Yeah, which is, in a way, I mean, uh, you know, spiritually, uh, when hmm. somebody passes, there certainly is a part of them that lives inside of you, forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as long as we remember, they're always here. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. That's
1: great. Well, I think we did it. Yeah. We did another. Okay. Okay. And now we can, uh, th- thanks to Scott Lewis, we, <laughs> can, uh, we can fade out on some, some great music.
0: listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyers Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story.